Welcome to the Audio Equipment Podcast. My name is Griffin Brashears, an audio engineer obsessed with uncovering the stories behind the tools used to shape the musical landscape of the past, present, and future. Today I'll be joined by John Zabo, musician, audio engineer, and the software developer behind the one-man operation Psycho Circuitry. Psycho Circuitry is known for their meticulous attention to detail in their modeling of less commonly modeled hardware equipment, paired with clean, usable workflows for professional engineers. Alongside algorithmically modeled software directly inspired by classic designs, Psycho Circuitry also makes innovative original software informed by John's unique take on different topologies. Today, John will be telling us a bit about himself, his work, what's to come, and what inspires him to develop high-quality tools for musicians to help craft stories of their own. Thanks for coming on the show, John. Thanks. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It truly is my pleasure to have you. Well, let's get right into it and talk a little bit about your background and programming and music. When do those things start to kind of take hold in your life? Sure. Well, as I explained in my brief history video, I've just always sort of had an intuitive way of logically assessing things. So our first computers at home when I was a kid, they didn't come with a whole lot of anything really. So I quickly kind of figured out a way that I could kind of shade squares on a grid to make some pictures on the screen, which is still kind of the basis of what I'm doing right now in kind of the art of this DSP stuff, so to speak, where I'm performing more creative tasks, but within very technical or logical domains. And as I suggested originally, my goals were more towards drawing and visual arts. But as I sort of grew out of the Saturday morning cartoon phase and into songs on the radio and CDs other folks my age had, it became more about music. And as that passion took hold as a listener, it didn't take long for me to want to be an active participant in making music. Yeah, it bites us all that bug. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So you started off with that, and do you have any uh, particular memories of when hardware kind of started to play a role in your life and kind of you started thinking about the more technical side of making music? Yeah, yeah, and the technical stuff obviously was a big part of anything as far as how I looked at music at any point. I mean, I can even remember being a kid and just wanting to uh, pretend like I was running a recording studio with a little handheld tape <laughs> recorder and all that kind of thing, too. Oh, yeah. So same here. Yeah, so, I mean, always interested in it. I always knew about it's all going on tape machines and goes through all this hardware Mixing yeah. console, all that kind of things was all, all part of the idea of music to me. So, when when was when did you kind of start recording your own stuff, and what was kind of the light bulb moment? I know a lot of people. I'm assuming we're kind of some, somewhere in the same age bracket, but a lot of people of you know people 25, 30 and up, uh, kind of just start discovered recording music by having like a, a some sort of a tape deck that they realized they could overdub more and more and more on. Did you ever have kind of that light bulb moment? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I love making songs, you know, pull up a little demo song on a little cheap keyboard or whatever that we have at the house and, you know, make up some lyrics over it, whatever, record it, however. And I did that from as long as I can remember, always doing stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but the uh, the light bulb moment of really, oh, I want to make make a song, a real song. I'm going to put some effort into this. Was was like that when I realized that I could use this reel to reel that my parents they actually bought it to uh, 
so they didn't have to change their LPs so often during like parties and things like that. They would mm. just dub the records onto these long reels. <laughs> yep. So and then it just hung around after that. And they had all these reels with all this holiday music on it and stuff. And they would come out during, you know, different holidays and we'd listen to that stuff. Um It's interesting so, kind of using that to to make kind of a old school form of playlisting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a, yeah, that was what like a delightful a, that, concept. That would have been like in the seventies, yeah. like late seventies. Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. So where, where do you think the crossover was between programming and music? I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about your programming journey, maybe a little bit b- before we get into where those crossed. But what got you into programming as kind of a field? Because a lot of people, they go from like working with computers to kind of moving into a more programming background, being like, well, I need the computer to do something. There's some problem to solve, something like that. Oh, yeah. And, and and that is exactly my experience with it, except it's just like was right into that at like five, six. You know, it's like we have this computer and it's like, I see it has some stuff on the screen here. I'd like to do something else with that. So it's like hmm. start to learn some basic programming and start to figure out how to put different things on there. Make images at first, and then I was interested in making like little quiz games and things like that. Oh, excellent! Well, what was the yeah, first computer that you remember kind of owning? Was it like a Commodore, it app- Apple? It was like an Apple IIe. Oh, yeah, yeah, wonderful. I I just barely missed that era. I was more the DOS era growing up. Yeah, yeah, that probably would have been more cutting edge, but we were kind of like a, had had a little older stuff, I guess. Yeah, there were computers weren't as cheap as they are now. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. So as far as where those kind of backgrounds cross, where do you think that you started realizing that, hey, this programming could be used to you to do something musical? I mean, that was apparent to me from the beginning, but I always had like this special place for music and I didn't want it to become this like demystified, there's no smoke and mirrors or anything in it at all anymore. I wanted it to have still a magical quality. So I really put forth a lot of effort to restrain myself from kind of tearing yeah. it all apart like totally. that. That totally makes sense. I think a lot of people are enamored with the mysticism and the story behind music of, of these larger-than-life creations. And yeah, if you if you know too much about it, I feel like it kind of explains the rainbow a little bit, you know? Well, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, it does take some of that away, like, we just do this thing and it sounds really good. We don't know why, but it does sound yeah. good. Um, but it, it is also kind of helpful to kind of maybe figure out what are some of those things that it's doing that sounds good. So maybe we could figure out how to apply these things elsewhere. Totally. Absolutely. So I guess if I could ask you about some modern things that you're going on, um, Tell us what you've been building over at Psycho Circuitry. I've personally really enjoyed your mini VCA and mini FET, which are kind of explorations of different compressor topologies using FET and VCA-inspired designs. And um, I believe you have something built uh, based on an Altec, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, the latest plugin that I put out was that ATEC FET162, and there was a few variations of that. Um, and that was based off of an Altec uh, FET limiter, Mm-hmm. Um, that was from the 60s. So, and then I, I really thought the design of that was pretty unique compared to some of the uh, more traditional FET compressors that we would look at as being, 
you know, kind of the typical sounds of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought really what held that back was um, just kind of the simplicity of the circuit. And the simplicity of it was a, a large part in due to how much additional things it needed to accomplish. Um, but focusing on just the limiting aspect in a plugin um, and with, you know, kind of mm-hmm. not having the restrictions of how to figure out all of this stuff in an electrical engineering sense, we could make some things that would be very hard to add that way um, and apply those much more easily uh, in DSP. So, and really expand the concept a lot to make it a lot more useful. And one of the goals that I had for that was something that I know the 1176 gets used a lot on vocals and a, a very standard chain would be an 1176 and an LA-2A. And Sometimes I think a FET compressor that's maybe a little more transparent than an 1176 might negate even needing to use the LA-2A at all. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the goals I had with the 162 was to kind of expand it into something that would be really maybe a little more soft or transparent, especially for like vocals or bass guitar. Seems like those really... You either like the character of the 1176 or something like that on those sources, or you don't. Totally. I think that it's interesting how so many of these things were created to be so transparent in their heyday, but just due to, you know, material design and limitations of what we understood about, you know, how to get a good transparent signal back in the heyday have created such beloved designs. The 1176 being such a, you know, specific thing and the Alltech using kind of a MOSFET design to give that different character was, it's a little bit less, um, I don't want to say overwhelming, but a little bit, a little bit more, gentle and soft and transparent it definitely shows in the way that it's used and i definitely think you hit the mark there with especially on vocals and bass where i've primarily been using the 162 yeah and it's always nice to kind of have those ideas and then see the hear people using them in the ways that i kind of maybe tweak them and not really said specifically that's 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 what i'm trying to improve here so totally yeah, I, I I very much admire you going after things that are a little bit more esoteric and hard to come by, um, things of that nature. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room to really even just expand on these concepts, things that would be just overlooked. Totally. And, and to kind of draw the parallel of, you know, having all this this nice playground for DSP work, you know, as opposed to doing the very you know, material-wise expensive electrical engineering to prototype and build these things. You know, similarly, you know, you're putting, you know, pieces of hardware, essentially these topologies and and sounds that would otherwise be very inaccessible for a majority of the engineers out there to play around and kind of notice the difference between an 1176 and a 16, and, you know, your 162 kind of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, that is one of the goals of why I would love to do this specifically in DSP and not mm-hmm. maybe also with hardware designs and things like that is because I think the DSP is the most accessible way that I can reach people with these types of concepts. The way that I can make it most usable to the, to the widest number of people. 
Because I really, I mean, my goal in all of this is really to help people make better music. At the end of the day, that's what I'm concerned with. And if I don't accomplish anything else other than that, I will be satisfied that I did accomplish at least that. Totally. That's a very, <laughs> very honorable goal. Um, is there any other software you've been using that you've been enjoying lately? You name drop some people that you appreciate the work of things that you've used in your own productions? I mean, there's all kinds of things, and my tastes change all the time. So, Of course, yeah. Um, one thing I can say as far as a big change that I made more recently, and more recently I'd say is like within the past five or six years, um, is switching my DAW to Reaper. Oh, I'm also I, a Reaper user myself. And I had, I had used Reaper a couple of times. Before that, I was pretty big into the uh, Cakewalk, Cakewalk Sonar oh, yeah. Great uh, tools. platform. Um, and uh, I just never really gelled with Reaper when I was pretty interested in the kind of the Cakewalk layout and way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, but then after the, after the Gibson buyout and then they folded and all that, and there was like that year or whatever before BandLab took all that over. That's right, that's right. Um, I needed something else. So. <laughs> As it happens, yeah, you know, too many things change hands. Not sure where it's going. It was already kind of looking like that's how how things were going to play out. So I had already kind of been putting my feelers out for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and Reaper was kind of where I settled on as far as, all right, I think I can make this work kind of how I'm used to. Um, but as it turned out, I was much happier with the overall flexibility of the entire design of Reaper. And now I cannot think of anything else I would want to use. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I could go on and on about how much I love Reaper, why I love Reaper. It's certainly, I'll end it by saying, this is a very Reaper-friendly podcast. <laughs> and I've noticed yeah. that usually people who are more in the technical-oriented fields, usually that seems seems more the case like yeah it's just so flexible and that flexibility is not something that's for everyone but for somebody who needs that flexibility it's great to have it all there and have it so readily accessible without a lot of uh just fine-tuning of configuration files and things like that yeah most Absolutely. of it is accessible through the menu system yeah it's just writing basic commands, things of that nature, has been such a game changer for me in my own workflow. And one of my big dreams at this point is to have a just listen to Tycho talk about how much he loves Reaper for two hours, three hours at a time. I know he's very yeah. vocal about his support for the DAW. And um, yeah, I've been using it on and off for, for quite a while myself um, with the last stint of me using it lasting about seven or eight years now so <laughs> I'm, I've been very happy with it um, as far as I want to get to talk to you a little bit about the DSP side of things if you're okay with that and talk to you about the maybe some accessibility aspects and how you kind of learned more and more about DSP your story kind of getting more involved with that and maybe if you have any uh, tips for people to learning how to program their own audio plugins. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, 
I was obviously very interested in the technical aspects of music pretty early on and diving right into mixing and mastering, at least studying those things and practicing them. Um, but keeping that barrier up from DSP or from learning more of DSP uh, was important to still grow as a musician for quite a number of years. Um, but as I started becoming a little more interested in the electronics engineering aspects and as I needed to learn that stuff to be able to repair things that I had or kind of modify or bring about designs and concepts, things that I was interested in, um, and then I had also started kind of making some MIDI utilities for myself to use um, with Reaper. And from there, it was just kind of a logical next step that I'm going to need to learn some DSP past this point. And not just because it's like I've already learned everything else, so now, now I need to do this. But also it's like this is the thing that's going to be preventing me from kind of taking this concept of plugging into other people's music and helping them grow and expand, tell their stories and go through their journeys. Mm -hmm. um, I would need the DSP knowledge in order to be able to bring about that kind of a goal in a more all-encompassing sense. And so with the DSP, as I start to try and find this stuff out, there's, there's just, there's a ton of information out there and it's not that it's, it's just, not always intuitively organized or presented. There's lots of explanations of concepts and principles just scattered everywhere. And this, this can kind of make uh, something in an already complex field like computer science even more of a daunting task to just find your way on. And everyone's situations will be different, but I would think a lot of folks interested in this type of application may have a similar type of ad hoc approach to information gathering that I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I could definitely pinpoint some specific things that were maybe uh, fundamental in me kind of getting a good handle on this. And maybe some things that I look at as being potential pitfalls uh, if you're interested in kind of wading into this DSP territory. Mm -hmm. So if your goal is to get acquainted with DSP concepts and kind of a general flow of events that will happen with processing a stream of audio, the JSFX scripting language in Reaper is definitely going to be a good place to start. And that's where I started. The syntax is easier, like a lot of more humanly readable scripting languages. It's uh, less pedantic with formatting accents. And it's all compiled on the fly, and there's no binary form. So all JSFX exist as the raw script, and Reaper ships with tons of them, and there's also a huge library of additional ones that folks have made and put out there. And all of these are things you can look at and dissect and poke at, and you can see how they work. And the Reaper forums also have a section that's dedicated to JSFX with tons of helpful resources, discussion, and folks who are just generally helpful if you just want to reach out with questions. And I would recommend something like this, maybe more over the visually oriented stuff like Flowstone or SynthEdit, because while the more visual programming environments can seem an even lower entry point, I've just seen in a lot of industries where these types of tools promote bad design concepts and artificially restricted ways of looking at or comprehending things. And a lot of times, 
when I see folks that want to take the next step past this sort of thing, there's just a huge amount of time in unlearning these bad design concepts. So I think this entry point, by using JSFX instead of something that's more visual, um, it puts you in a more useful place going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that when you when it comes to visual scripting and things like that, my experience is that it's really good to start and it can be great for inspiring you to kind of proceed with something that is as daunting as building your own software, but you, the limitations do start to catch up fairly quickly. And even though I've seen great tools made with you know more visual side scripting things, I think that if you really want to dig deeper into why things work, it's a lot easier to express those concepts in something that can take you a little further and hopefully not not lead you down the bad habit rabbit hole. I've and I've seen that too. And one of the things that I'll just point out as a specific example, and it's not even really anything related to this, is that I've done a lot of work on Blender. I've actually done some contribution to Blender when it had a game engine in it. Yep, I remember um, that. Oh man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so and one of the things that it used for programming was this logic bricks, like the spaghetti noodles connect this stuff together. It wasn't even quite nodes in its setup. It was just these bricks that kind of flow left to right and you hook them up um, and I saw so many people make so many amazing and complicated things with that that were just no one else could even understand what they had done because it was such a mess to look at totally yeah it's and, totally lost and not only the, that but it's like the, <laughs> the, logic. the ingenuity that it takes to come up with it would be much better served solving program or solving problems with traditional programming resources totally yeah i think that uh i remember failing to understand you know i've failed to understand blender for so many years now on so many levels and <laughs> i think that the the visual scripting yeah the, the the side of things it's like okay i can at a certain point what what should be easier is now made so obfuscated by just the the ability to do things in such insane ways and and crazy ways which in a way i guess is kind of charming to some degree you know if there's tools people have probably built some crazy things with them especially in computer science domains but blender oh, yeah, blender sure. has has definitely been i feel like certain parts of that i think they tried to make certain aspects easier and realized that it was maybe leading people towards uh s some fringe areas of logic expression especially with like um the game engine stuff and i think that's why they removed a qu quite a bit of things yeah. like that <laughs> obviously as someone who was involved with that community and done a little bit of contribution onto the source code there with bug fixing and things like that it was mm -hmm. sad to see it go but yeah honestly it was the right move because it held a lot of other parts of the application back by kind of keeping that legacy stuff in there totally and now I think they probably recognized with so many good modern engines, especially the open source Godot or Godot, depending on how you pronounce it, you know, they were kind of like, well, maybe it's time for this to be more more so just 3D modeling and effects for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. So if I could get maybe a bit more of your time talking about your own music, uh, how has uh, that been progressing for you? Have you released anything recently? Do you have anything you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, so when it comes to other projects and things that I work on, I'm really interested in everything media, man. I dabble in all of it. Films, animation, games, 
So stuff like this is yeah, all well, somewhere. One man army. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't <laughs> know you made games. Incredible. You make software. Well, I guess I kind well, of. Well, I. I haven't released it. anything. I should have known by the blender. By the blender. Yeah. I, <laughs> I definitely spend way too much time looking at all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. So stuff like stuff like that is all somewhere in my bucket list. Mm-hmm. But music is obviously still my main passion above everything else. Wonderful. So I definitely have spent, and I still do spend, a lot of time just making music. And it's become more of just for fun or for my enjoyment. But I do put it out there for any other folks to check out. I just try to capture the energy and things that I liked about the music that mattered to me when I was younger. But maybe also put in some modern sensibilities and other things that I've kind of been interested in along the way, and also put in some kind of an older, wiser part of the story to tell with all of it also. And I make this to just relax, unwind, and have fun, uh, but I also use it to process difficult things and offer myself perspectives and thoughts that I'd expect I might need, things that I might need reminded of at some point later on. Music is how I... Music is how I express joy, how I express grief, and really anything. How I process and hold on to tangible things in a chaotic world. And I think my music really reflects that kind of a perspective. So it's definitely not everyone's type of thing, but if you're interested in more of the older 90s, 2000s industrial rock, it's worth checking out. Wonderful. And that's available on Bandcamp, correct? Is it, is it available on streaming platforms as well, or just Bandcamp? Just Bandcamp. Uh, I, I do also have it on SoundCloud, and I think the whole album is also on the YouTube channel somewhere in the videos there. Oh, wonderful. And that's under the name Psycho Circuitry as well? Yeah, on all of those platforms. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I did check out, uh, maybe a little bit disingenuous of me to pretend like I don't know your music. Uh, <laughs> I did check out, you didn't invite me to your party, so I made this for your next one, which is a somewhat recently released record and I I quite enjoyed it myself. Yeah. Thanks for checking it out. That was my pleasure. So as far as upcoming projects, am I at liberty to ask you what you might be working on right now and what's possibly in the pipeline for new plugins? Oh yeah. You don't have to, if there's any trade secrets, you don't have to reveal those quite yet, but if you have anything that you're working on that you're excited about, I'd love to hear about it. Oh yeah. And And I have a huge scope of things that I'd like to put out. And so I definitely love sharing kind of some other things that are on my roadmap here. Fantastic. Yeah. So for specific kinds of pieces of hardware and things like that, I have kind of a bunch of stuff in storage, stuff that I used to use or just don't have space for. Uh, Just cool things that I feel like no one else would even bother on because they're not really prestigious or more like workhorse type stuff that maybe has more of an economical type sound. Something that would probably be less appealing from a modeling standpoint um, for any marketing potential. Um, So, and to specifically point out some stuff like that, I'm interested in going a lot further and completing some stuff that I've done with researching and modeling some of those older Aphex units. Oh, yeah. Specific- I think I've used it. I think uh, well, it's like a 651. I think I use that a lot. Kind of an old workhorse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of compressors and a 
the the gate as uh, is one of my favorites um but one thing that specifically that i definitely want to do is the uh the dominator is a multi-band limiter um i haven't heard it's of that definitely one. a unit it's definitely a unit that has some cool stuff going on in it and it's just ends up being too awful to use a lot of the time because of how how audibly degraded the signal ends up going through all the vcas in that unit i think it passes through six vcas total from the input to the output yeah so i can imagine that sucks maybe some of the life out of (laughs) what passes through all that circuitry yeah yeah so it unless you really want it to sound just pretty lo-fi and kind of nasty it's not really a good choice. Whereas some of these concepts, especially it has uh, like an automatic uh, threshold setting on it um, to where it will lower the threshold uh, as kind of the buildup of all of these bands might exceed what's supposed to be the ceiling. Hmm. It's really kind of an interesting idea. It's kind of like using a compressor at the end of it, but instead of the compressor doing additional compression, it just evaluates whether the threshold on these bands needs to be lowered. Interesting. Yeah, that is yeah, a, that that is pass- a, a yeah. funky <laughs> funky idea. Yeah. I, I cannot wait to use that one. That one's going to get a lot of use. <laughs> and then all of that fun. passes through a, through a clipper as well, so to... Pre- keep try to keep everything like a peak limiter yeah these are these are totally like especially in the analog domain like these are really useful things to have i can imagine like a live engineer or a particularly actually a really common use for that is in broadcast scenarios where everything kind of needs to be slammed to pretty equal volumes but kind of as transparently as possible yeah maybe maybe there's something funky in there with like phase rotation or some other like broadcast style yeah well yeah well it's split into three bands too so Mm -hmm. there will definitely be some stuff going on with crossovers and all that yeah broadcast stuff i feel like is kind of its own it almost like developed just so highly specific for broadcast that when you use those things in a musical context it's always like a wow this is very strange but ultimately really interesting piece of equipment yeah, and that's it. Uh, and it may not be super useful, but it'll do one or two things really well. And you won't be able to find anything else that does something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's it's ter- it can certainly be pretty tough to find, <laughs> especially in the digital domain. Like a lot of that stuff has just never made that jump to software. Right. Because it is so well, highly specialized. Think, well, and, and I, sometimes I think a lot of the reason for some of this like I did the DBX 160X, and I know the 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 Altec uh, FET limiter is uh, not not quite as inexpensive as it used to be. Um, but a lot of this stuff, these pieces of gear, maybe looked at more as like what would be the point of modeling it when someone could just go out and buy it for mm-hmm. hundred bucks or hundred fifty bucks secondhand. So obviously all of this stuff has really gone up in value more recently. Totally, yeah. I think I think there's a couple of reasons too that that go kind of beyond the scope of just usability, right? There's um documenting, you know, for for later generations having something expressed in DSP to kind of document, you know, the the actions and mechanisms that these things work on. Um mm-hmm. and then there's also the workflow concerns, right? I think that oh, you yes. know, I recently bought 
uh, finally someone had cloned the or emulated the micro limiter from Elysees, and it's the the mm-hmm. purified audio um, micro limiter, and you know it's really useful on quite a few things, or or even like more expensive pieces of hardware. You know, I I don't really think I'll ever in my lifetime have access to eight Fairchild stereo compressors. But having access right. to that in the box, you know, having almost that excess is is kind of nice sometimes. <laughs> I think that it's pretty it's pretty cool that that we can, you know, replicate things with with software just from a workflow perspective. Having a really highly usable parametric EQ on every channel is something that was kind of like unthinkable in the 60s, for instance. Yeah, 60s or 70s. Yeah. Really, it was like just a couple of bands give us a little bit of tone shaping. Yeah. So actually, that you bring up that micro limiter kind of brings up uh, something that I think as well. With uh, while the micro limiter may not be something that's super expensive to get your hands on. Obviously, a lot of people could have one, and a lot of people do have them, and that's why they get used a lot. Um. Sometimes it's not just about is it is it affordable in the hardware sense as much as just having it in the DSP would be more useful, yeah. even if it's more expensive. For the convenience sake, yeah, it's true. It's it becomes yeah. a feature to not have the hardware. I'm I'm a software person myself when it comes to mixing. I do have a p- few pieces of hardware that I really enjoy, but for the most part, I do like working primarily in the DAW just off of preference. Um, I've been yeah. I've I've done tons of setups. I've done all software setups, all hardware setups, Mm -hmm. and all kinds of varieties of hybrid setups. And at this point in time, I will say as much of it as I can do in the computer, I would prefer to do it that way because I can just bring all of it back up anytime. Yeah, the recall is huge. Yep, modify anything at any point in time. I've been... Wishing, I think that there was one attempt that I know of to replicate an Elysee's 3630 in software. And I think it was from Disco DSP. They had an old 32-bit plugin called Nightshine. And it's great. And I've been waiting for someone to want to replicate a unit that you can, like as of now, on the high end of what they sell for, go on eBay or whatever your local you know, trading station is and get one for $40, $50 in great condition, barely used, yeah, you know. There's a lot of people that think they sound pretty awful. <laughs> I I I would say that they probably do, uh personal opinion to some degree, but historically they were used on so much great music because they were the most affordable thing on the block, and so that contributes to the legacy yeah. of what they were used on and the sound and working around the limitations. And I think that it's cool that we're at a point where even though we have so much of this amazing, uh, perfectly replicated software, like we have the code ports of the Weiss stuff for, uh, over at SoftTube with like the DS1 and other like really high-end boutique stuff. Now there's almost an additional need for the grimy, strange, crazy stuff that people had to work around because it's it's what they had and it was affordable, but it contributed to the the sound of eras, whole eras of music. Like Air Windows, I yeah, think, has been doing uh, clones of the saturation you get from Mackie mixing consoles and 
you know, things like that, that it's almost like, yeah, we have access to eight Fairchilds, but I still want to reach for a micro limiters to get like a good squish on guitars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, in a lot of ways, like how people want the sound of those old samplers to just make it have something that's a quality of a particular era, the, these kind of older and dirtier sounding compressors can do a lot of the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's we're at a point where mixing and and cre- the creation of music is so impressionistic that it is not about the most pristine things. I mean, it can be sometimes, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of ways to ice that cake, but it's cool that people can just choose to be like, you know, I, I want this to sound like it was ran through an SP12 and I want to alias the high end and just do that on the master bus. You know, like that was kind of an insane concept before. Like you didn't really want to do that in the 90s, but you sometimes had to. And now it's a desirable effect because classic music did that sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some people were forced to do that, and it added a little bit of extra character to those things. Turned out well for them, yeah. (laughs) So to close out, what are three pieces of gear that have inspired you from maybe different stages of your musical development? I know you mentioned that tape machine that you had in your living room growing up, and maybe tie that into kind of how you got started using it for your own musical journeys and mention a couple other things if if you'd care to share. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can definitely think of a few pieces of gear that have been extremely influential to me uh, along my journey. And I did mention that kind of quarter-inch reel-to-reel recorder that my parents had that I used to bounce uh, some stuff back and forth with on a tape deck there. Um, and... Just when I was a kid, I spent so many hours making kind of the most awful music ever, but it was hundreds of songs with just the sky's the limit in my youth. And then as I got a little bit older from that, probably like 15 or 16, not not quite able to drive on my own yet, the first kind of big investment was a drum machine. And that was a Boss DR-202. And I had to have this one specifically because it had the two industrial genre kits in the memory. And I really cut my teeth with sequencing, kit designing, and just rhythm concepts in general with that thing for quite a long while. I remember tons of nights with my headphones on and my lights out up all night, that red light flashing while I'm trying to figure out some cool beats. And then beats I'd play some guitar over later. And I still use the DR-202 to this day. Still, that Philly hit or res noise is exactly what I'm looking for. And plenty of the drum sounds too, like tight and pillow kick, are good starting points for me when I'm looking to do some layering, as well as pretty much all of the snare sounds. And then even from a performance aspect as well, I still think there's not anything quite like it. It's not like a complex modern sampler or sequencer with a bunch of hands-on control and manipulation in real time, but it's just a simple drum machine with a few kind of like minimal controls, knobs, pads that anyone can use and perform with. And there was a lot of times in my 20s where I'd just get together with some friends and have a good time, and I would just pass it around. It's like, there, you're the DJ for 15 minutes now. Mm-hmm. And with the built-in sounds Very and social. patterns and... Yeah, and with the built-in sounds and direct kind of dive-right-in controls, 
anyone with any level of experience could have fun just participating with the music. And I think I paid about $400 for that, which was like insurmountable money for me at 15 and like 1999. But I think that's also a big part of what makes it so special to me over just some other crummy drum machine from the turn of the millennium. So, and then one piece of gear I think is really influential to me right now because it kind of summarizes some of my goals for, for my current hardware setup. And that would be the Warm Audio TB12, the Tone Beast preamp. Oh, those are great. Yeah, it's a really great sounding unit that's got a lot of flexibility to adapt to the source material. And obviously it's still all pretty API-esque in its flavor, um, but there's kind of like a cleaner and dirtier version and then a more modern and more vintage flavor of both of those, which really gives me everything I need for different mics, guitar, bass, DI, and so on without having to have like four or five different preamps in a patch bay. Yeah, a lot more flexibility for sure. Yeah, it seems like it's quick, ready to go for anything, always. And so really cuts down on a lot of time needed to kind of figure out what I'm going to do. Yeah, Just a couple of knobs to switch around and kind of check it out and go. Very convenient. Well, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I greatly appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, For everyone out there listening, definitely check out all the Psycho Circuitry stuff that is uh, both in the pipeline and already out over at psychocircuitry.com. And thanks for coming on the show. We'll see you next time.